favorite places to start is uh, what part of West Virginia you grew up in. I know that's always uh, a fun thing to kind of learn. See if we kind of we'll probably know uh, <laughs> fellow people or neighbors or areas. But tell us a little bit about what uh, what was it like growing up in West Virginia for you? So I'm from Huntington, West Virginia. You know, it's the southwestern part of the state, and you know when people ask me where I'm from, from West Virginia, and I try to narrow, you know, try to zero in on where I'm from. It's like, oh, I'm from Huntington, you know, Southwest part, you know, right there by Ohio, Kentucky, Tri-State, you know, and they're like, uh, like what part of Virginia? It's like, no, 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 no. West Virginia, we became our own state, 1863. Uh, Have you, have you seen the movie We Are Marshall with Matthew McConaughey? And they're like, oh yeah, of course. I was like, that's where I'm from. That's Huntington. Uh, Unfortunately, Unfortunately, you know, that we're known for that Marshall plane crash, but it does like instantly zero people in like, oh, yeah, I've seen Matthew McConaughey and he was the coach. And it's like, yeah, that's that's where I'm from. That's Huntington. That's funny. Um, Looking back, you went to Vincent High School, right? Yeah, Vincent High School, which I don't even, you know, it's it's like a middle school now. It's uh, yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. So, yeah. CK, Sarita Canova, and Vincent, all those, yeah, that uh, huge those, rivals, those man. old schools, man. That's uh, nothing quite like that anymore. But um, even looking back on some of your old high school football days, you know, what do you, what do you kind of remember about growing up in that part of the state? Because, like you said, CK, Vincent, that was, that was as heated of a rivalry as there was in West Virginia. Man, you, yeah, you're not kidding. It really was. And uh, you know, Vincent had been a losing program, a, a losing football program for for years, maybe even decades. And then, you know, I played football, midget league, peewee football, whatever you want to call it from, you know, five, six years old, all the way up until I graduated high school. Um, So, you know, I played with a core group of guys and we actually continued playing all the way up. So freshman year, we got destroyed, but it really made us tough. um, My class. And then my sophomore year, we started turning around a little bit. We had some wins. Junior year, we had a winning program. Mm-hmm. And then my senior year, uh, we actually went to to state playoffs. Uh, unfortunately, we got beat. Uh, we played a team. I don't know if you guys know this team, but uh, Sistersville. Mm-hmm. It was like up in the mountains, man. These are some big boys, man. It was like, gee, Manny. These dudes were some just, they were big. But, but anyway... We, we turned our program around and I think my junior year maybe was the last year that we played CK and then they, they didn't play us the next year. <laughs> and my conspiracy theory was, it's like, man, they knew that, yeah. that we were going to beat them. My they senior beat them year. Again, yeah. A, yeah. I think we went nine and one that year. And then I saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Um, very cool. Remember, so, go ahead. You remember growing up in West Virginia, did you feel like you had a sense of like, did you know where you were headed or do you feel like, like I feel like a couple of people approach this in a couple of different ways. They, they grow up in a small town or West Virginia and they're like, they're running, like they want to kind of run away from it. They want to experience new things. They want to kind of get away from it. Some people grow up and they kind of the opposite. They, they feel kind of at peace and they, the slower maybe lifestyle and the, the community, the family, the high school sports, and maybe that's just, it feels exactly what they want to do and they're glad they're doing it. They want to keep doing it forever and forever. Like, can you, can you remember growing up? Do, do you feel like you had a feeling of either way? Did you feel like being in West Virginia, it felt like, man, like what else is out there? Do you feel like when you were here, it felt like, wow, like this is maybe where I'm supposed to be, if that makes sense. Just a great question. I, for me, I always felt like, you know, there's something else out there. Um, and I wanted to see what that was. 
And I think that kind of tied in with how I was as a student. You know, I was I was average. I wasn't a great student uh, coming up, you know, in middle school and high school and all of that. And so I, I wasn't a great student. I felt like, you know, hey, there's something else out there. And the military kind of just like was my calling, I believe. And that was my way to to get out and explore and see see what else is out there uh, outside of West Virginia. Yeah. Did you know, did you have a couple of other guys that you grew up with that were, that went into the service with you? Cause you graduated high school and then, um, you went to the U S army, right? Did you have yeah. other guys with you that were like, let's do it? You know, yeah, several, several people that I played football with, they, they went into the service. I didn't have like someone that went, you know, exactly with me on my army journey, but, um, mm -hmm. luckily for me, and the rest of the guys wow. I was with on the football team, our football coach was uh, West Virginia National Guard Special Forces, uh, Carl Thornburg, and he's still alive. I just I just spoke to him recently, and that's how I kind of got back on that CK conspiracy theory because I asked him, "Was like, coach, you know?" And I graduated I back in 1990, yeah. <laughs> so this has been on my mind for like 30 years. Like, why didn't we play CK our senior year? And he's like, he goes, Daryl, they they pulled us off the the schedule you know and i was like oh okay <laughs> but anyway you know coach thornburg was my mentor and he mentored a lot of the guys that that you know that played football with me and that he coached so we had guys that went to the marine corps air force navy uh, army but yeah there were i mean from huntington there were a lot of kids that um and i self-admittedly man I, I grew up poor uh humble beginnings so a lot of the guys that i you know, played football with had similar, you know, backgrounds and coach Thornburg kind of like brought us all in and said, Hey, um, this is an option for you guys. Cause I think he probably realized once we graduated, if we didn't go to college, we didn't join the service, we were probably going to be getting in a lot of trouble. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank, thank goodness. I had coach Thornburg as a great mentor to kind of show me the way and, you know, just kind of give me an option. What um paint the picture? What what you don't want to date you here? Um, but, but what what year were you headed into the military? Where was the country at? What was the mood of the country in terms of you know a young lad headed into service? Was it or um you know were we headed into a war? Like what 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 time period? I guess was this in America? Yeah, man, I'm all good with the the date part there. <laughs> uh, so I graduated in 1990. I think I graduated in uh, maybe May. May or June, whenever the typical high school graduations are. And then I entered the service July 24th of 1990. Um, and I'm not for sure if Desert Shield, uh, the you know, the first uh, Iraq go around, if that was like in the early stages, it might have been. But I know while I was going through basic training, it definitely had had kicked off. And because I remember our drill sergeants were like, hey, you want to pay attention to this? You know, you need to know how to put your uh, protective mask on in case someone, you know, gasses you or whatever. But um, that was a whole different ball game. Like, man, this is for realsies. You know, this isn't come in and chill for a couple of years and get your college money and get out like this is this could be a big, big war. So, yeah, that's what was going on. Uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm and. Um, you know, I, I went through basic training at Fort Benning, uh, Georgia, 
which it's called Fort Moore now because they just changed a bunch of the the military installation names. I think it's uh, Fort Fort Moore, but it's Fort Benning, Georgia. And my first duty station was uh, Fort Ord, California. So that was kind of interesting. That's in Monterey. I don't know if you guys have ever been to been to California, but it's a really it's kind of a swanky part of of California. You know, that's a that's a high end place. There's a lot of there's a lot of money out there. You're like, yeah, this isn't too bad from <laughs> it really from wasn't. Where man. I was at. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't really have much to judge it off of because yeah. so, I was such a brand new guy. Um, and here we are. I'm on, you know, I'm at Fort Ord, California, and we have firing ranges basically like on the beach shooting out over the Pacific. <laughs> and I was just, you know, I didn't know like how cool that was because uh, yeah. I was just so young and inexperienced. But looking back over that, I was like, man, that's kind of cool. You know, that we had all that beautiful sand. Of course, it was always foggy. Uh, we had to deal with that, but it was a, it was kind of a neat first duty station. And I've been on some other podcasts and they're like, man, you really don't have like a West Virginia accent. It's like, well, I mean, my first duty station was California. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but, um, yeah, it, it, it out of it. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's funny. But if, if we got you back in West Virginia and you were drinking, beer, <laughs> I, I have a feeling it would come a at least one does. <laughs> yeah, I could probably throw out a couple couple words here and there. <laughs> so, like so then, go ahead. So then, okay, so you're in training in California. Then, when does kind of the active duty call? Like when, like when do when does it start getting real? I mean, did you serve overseas? Like, how was that early couple um, years in service? Yeah, so I did a few years. Um, I came in as eleven Bravo, which is infantry, and. So I probably did five or six years and then I started realizing that there's a lot of other things that are out there in the army that kind of piqued my interest and I was intrigued by. And one of them was special forces. And I think this goes back to that tie in with uh, with Coach Thornburg because he was, you know, from the West Virginia National Guard and he was special forces. Uh, but at the time, you know, when we were 17, 18 years old, like I couldn't even wrap my brain around what that meant to be right. special forces, Green Beret. I knew it was something like, wow, you know, cool. I couldn't even really <laughs> process it. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't process it. Uh, how, you know, how meaningful that was and, and how hard that is to achieve something like that. But probably five or six years in, uh, I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, and I started getting the bug for like, oh man, hey, there's something else out there in the army that I could do. And maybe I should give this special forces thing a tryout and see if I can make it. See if, see if they, they want me to come over there and try that. So, yeah. Yeah. It, can you even get into that? Like, what does special forces mean? What does it mean to be a Green Beret? Like, get into some of the specifics of just like, what does that even mean for somebody that doesn't know, including me? I really don't know. Like, what, what's the difference? What are the main differences? So uh, it's a it's a great question. You know, like there's the regular army units that are like the infantry and there's artillery and there's all these other different jobs that you could do. Well, special forces is is basically a step above those units. They have specialized missions that they mm -hmm. do. They're part of the special operations family. And you probably if you if you've seen like Black Hawk Down, you know, there's like Delta, which yep. is a, a tier one national level asset unit, the Rangers, uh, Navy SEAL Team 6. So Special Forces Green Berets 
they're in that they're under Category. that umbrella yeah. Yeah. yeah and they have specialized missions that they do um foreign internal defense uh strategic reconnaissance direct action unconventional warfare which is basically you know the bread and butter for for a special forces uh guy nowadays it's gal uh because they've changed all of the uh, the requirements and things like that but but it's it's more of a specialized uh unit that does specialized missions yeah yeah good deal and, and so it's continue. you have to yeah you have to be like a triple volunteer and you have to go through, you know, like a year's worth of training. Um, you have to go through a selection process just to be eligible to go through the training. So it's a lot. Um, you have to learn a language. Uh, there's just so many different requirements and it's um, it's a tough process. But that's that's what I wanted to do. That was probably mid 1990. So it's 1995, 1996 is when I started getting ready for that. And uh, I was just fortunate enough to go to Special Forces Assessment Selection at Fort Bragg, uh, which is now called, I think, Fort Liberty. But uh, I went through uh, selection at Fort Bragg and was fortunate enough to get picked up and uh, was able to go through the Special Forces Qualification course, which is like a year long. And then uh, got through that, did some language training. And then uh, my first duty station was over in Stuttgart, Germany. So. Well what was the language that you picked up German, Spanish? Like, what did you, yeah. Yeah. And that was tough for me, man. It was, it was really tough for me. I remember like day one being in class and uh, our teacher asked like, Hey, who, you know, who in this classroom has experienced uh, a foreign language, you know, either in high school or from a parent or whatever. And pretty much everybody had been through some type of language training, except for me and like one other dude. And, uh, I felt like, man, that was a struggle trying to learn a, a different language. And it's probably one of my bigger regrets that I wish I would have worked harder on that. Because uh, just having that ability to have a second language, I think is so important. But uh, I was a rock, man. I was a language rock. It just didn't come easy to me. Um, so it, it was really tough. And a lot of the other guys in the class, man, they were, you know, they were like speaking German like that first week. And it's like, man, yeah. I just, I just didn't have that, that skill set. Well, I'm sure it's so interesting that the, when you decide to go into a service and then especially now as you're like in your career, you're not now, but back then you were learning some of, some of the more advanced techniques, obviously you're going in the special forces. So it's like, you're kind of meeting that all of these people from around the country who have these vastly different backgrounds. And so some can speak a foreign language, some can't like, I'm sure that was just itself kind of like an awakening of like, wow, there's so many different unique people from all over the country. And here we are just like, now we're all trying to work together for this collective mission. I'm sure that that was just a bit of a wild experience in itself. Cause that's just a collection of, from people of people from everywhere yeah it's definitely the melting pot you know uh it's definitely the melting pot and i think the military i think for the most part man the military at least from my experience they do a really good job of of integrating people and people assimilating to the culture and things yeah. like that i, I yeah. think there's a lot that civilian society can learn i'm not saying the military is perfect 100 percent of the time because we're certainly not but i do think that there are some uh some really strong points of, of the service. And, um, it was very, 
it was very refreshing to me, you know, like when we're serving, we literally were like all one team. So there was never, you know, like, Hey, these guys are in trouble. They need help. And it's like, well, you know, what, who are those guys? It's like, it didn't matter who those guys were or gals. It was, there are people they're you know, they're Americans. So um, that was always very refreshing. Yeah. And then serving. So here, let me do a concept here. So, so hard times, right. Um, you fall back on habits, right. That's like, that's just in life. When you go through hard times, you fall back onto your habits. And when shit hits the fan, um, you fall back on training. That's probably a little bit more military speak, but when shit gets crazy, that's why you train in the military. Did you feel like fellow, did you run into fellow Appalachians, fellow West Virginians, where it felt like they, it feels like in the military, a high levels of military, a lot of the guys end up coming from Appalachia, you know, West Texas, Montana, like maybe it's because they're more familiar, you know, laying in a prone position with a rifle from deer hunting. But it's also, I, I can't imagine it's not a crazy line to draw is that they're connected to resourcefulness. They know how to communicate. They understand hard work. Um, you know, the, the risk taking that sort of thing. Like, did you feel like, did you have any sort of edge in those environments, maybe because of your Appalachian roots and history being from West Virginia? Oh yeah, man, of course, of course, especially coming from humble beginnings. I grew up in West Virginia, my dad, you know, hunting, fishing, trapping. Um, maybe that could have been a little bit of a West Virginia accent when I said those three together. <laughs> hunting, fishing, but, trapping. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll play it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, but folks from West Virginia and other parts of the country are, are resilient and, um, you know, in the military, there's guys that have like kind of a dark humor and, and, you know, things are, there's not a lot of things that are off limits. So, um, there's like this stereotypical West Virginia. It's like, Oh, did you marry your sister or were you barefoot? And first time you came into the army, you got a pair of boots and you were so happy or whatever. Like there's all this type of stuff, but, and it's a little, you know, it could cross over sometimes, but I always took it as like a badge of honor. It was like, man, cause I knew I was representing, uh, the state and I always tried to be a good ambassador for the state of West Virginia. Cause that's, you know, that's where I'm from and that's where I was born and raised. Uh, so yes, there was a lot of jokes and stuff like that from guys, but when it really got down to it, like your, like your question here, like when it really got down to it, people knew that they could rely on folks from West Virginia or Kentucky or West Texas, you know, it's like, man, yeah, you can play around and joke and laugh and all that stuff. But when, like what you said, like when shit hits the fan, uh, it's going to be those West Virginia boys that are going to going to be there and they're going to bring it. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. what I always tried to do. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, it was always uh, that was that was always something that kind of made me smile for sure. You had said previously that so other guys from and gals from West Virginia, uh, you know, Appalachia, Kentucky kind of had a different reputation in the military. Like what can you allude on that a little bit? Like what was yeah. the general perception? Yeah, I think a, a lot of it is like the, you know, a lot of guys and gals from those parts of the country typically come from humble beginnings. Um, they're, you know, they're resilient. Um, they probably grew up hunting or fishing or shooting, you know, and when you when you grow up around that, it's normal to you. But when you when you like when I was a Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training and 
and it's the you know no kidding melting pot and you got guys and yeah you got guys from all over the country uh and you start talking to them and you realize that they didn't grow up the same way that you did and they've never shot a rifle they've never shot a pistol they've never been hunting you know never been fishing it's just like a different it's a different uh environment you know yeah yeah but to us that was that's kind of normal like that's how we grew up i would say sure sure yeah do you find um do you find the general someone who i do want to get to your work specifically with the the national medal of honor museum foundation and the work that you've done there um do you feel like the general public especially over the last maybe I don't know, 10 years, you could even, I could even pinpoint at least in my life personally, like with the killing of Osama bin Laden. And once we learned that like the SEAL teams did that, there became this like romanticization or love affair or like over, like with special teams kind of became this like fun, almost like a cool thing. And it maybe it always has been, it's always been, you know, a different breed of guys. It was always selective. It was always the tip of the spear type stuff, but movies and Hollywood, and it felt like it like romanticized war. It kind of romanticized patriotism. You feel like there's a little bit of a perception gap between the general public and then guys that actually are from that lifestyle that serve in the military, that know the true cost of war that have been through shit. Like you've, you've seen, like, you know, real heroes and, and stories that know the public lover we're not going to see on the big screen. Right. We can see Chris Kyle get reenacted and, you know, that could be fun for us. Maybe it helps us like conceptualize war. Maybe it helps the general public understand what's going on but that might not be a perfect 100 match of what it actually is like to do that type of stuff so do you ever find yourself maybe differentiating when you talk to people about special forces and that might be these <laughs> these two guys on the the other end of your your zoom screen here like is do you find yourself maybe educating and helping people maybe understand what exactly you guys have gone through and maybe the, how that's a little bit different from maybe movies and media um portrays yeah well yeah, definitely Hollywood puts a spin on everything. Um, and, and I think right now with, and I'm trying not, I don't want to go down a political rabbit hole with the withdrawal in Afghanistan, but I know a lot of my brothers, um, and you see them on social media, that there's like a moral in, injury uh, to our country right now because of what happened with, with Afghanistan. And it's really hurt a lot of people because we have... 20 years invested in that country and uh we've all lost a lot of you know friends and a lot of blood sweat and tears and and even you know even iraq was was the same with how that whole thing ended but um i think that there are folks uh from my community that are that are trying to get out there a little bit more and trying to spread uh spread messages like hey um it's okay if you have a problem or you know, you're having issues. It takes a lot of courage to to raise your hand and say, hey, I need some help. So I think there definitely is that part with the Hollywood that like we're all just like robotic killers and, you know, all that type of stuff. But there is a human dimension to what we do, obviously. Um, and some guys are struggling and and some guys, you know, are fine. Mm-hmm. But there is I think there is, you know, kind of a mix there. Um uh, but I would say just Hollywood does kind of uh, they kind of do their own thing on on some of these movies and reenactments, and they probably make it a little bit sexier than what it really is. Yeah, 
I mean, even yeah. like some of these video games too, Tom Clancy, Call of Duty, like, do you think that it is better that maybe some of that is now more ex- accepted might not be the right word, but is it better that more people kind of understand things like that now? Or is this almost like kind of getting us off course of like, well, this isn't really anything like the military, what it's even like. So, you know what I mean? Like, do you, do you yeah. kind of enjoy that some of this stuff is out there now, the movies, the games and stuff like that? Or is it almost like oversaturated a little bit and it's like, all right, this is really serious stuff that we're kind of turning into just like very simple, you know, media. Should, like, should we play war? Like, is that a yeah, good exactly. thing for society? Play. Like, kids exactly. are like, like yeah. our generation, we grew up like, you know, not a lot of us maybe serve, but it was like you there was a young, you know, it's not an extension, like young men are drawn to that, you know, maybe yeah. violence or action or risk taking, you know, our brains developing that sort of thing. But is that good that we're acting as if we're these yeah. special forces guys on know. video games? Yeah, exactly. Well, I can't really speak to the to the video game uh, <laughs> crowd because I, you know, I'm not a video game guy, but I do think it's good that there is some exposure because I go back to my childhood and and the influences that I had, obviously different from from the way that you guys grew up. But I remember growing up and reading a lot of books uh, about the Vietnam era, you know, um, long range reconnaissance guys, special forces guys, some of the, you know, some of the heroes from that time period. Like I remember reading a lot of those books and then you contrast that with this generation that are listening to podcasts, they're listening to this podcast, or they might right. be playing Call of Duty or Halo or some of the other ones I'm trying to remember that my son played uh, growing up. But I think there is a little bit of exposure there. And if that can help, you know, intrigue someone or maybe someone's more interested in joining the military because they got a little bit of a taste of maybe what the military might be like, even though it might not be 100% accurate. Uh, if that helps, because you guys probably realize, man, we're getting crushed right now on recruiting and retention in the United States military. Like we're 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 not hitting our numbers and everyone's trying to figure it out. Like, hey, why can't we get guys and gals to serve anymore? So I'm all for if, if we can get a little exposure and publicity out there and maybe intrigue someone that they'd want to serve. Like I'm all for that. But at the same time. If there's someone that, you know, if there's someone out there that's probably having some issues um, and they're kind of drifting and then they play some of these very violent games and it kind of like gets into their mind and they they're not able to distinguish between gameplay and real life. Like, you know, I kind of worry about that because it seems like it's maybe desensitizing violence and uh, you you. I mean, it's almost once or twice a week you hear about some of these mass shootings. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm not a psychologist or doctor or anything like that, but there has to be something that's going into all of that that just desensitizes people to the violence. And maybe it is some of these games. I'm not I'm not for sure. I think so. I mean, and I think that I could also like the, my point with the movies and stuff is that that could fuel the misconceptions and stereotypes about what it actually means to serve. Like if I can just watch something, if I go watch a movie or play the video game, big, oh, well, like that didn't affect me. Like these guys are tougher in the movie. That guy acted like he was just a hero. Like, you know, like there's a little bit of like, well, then why are you raising your hand and saying that you're having a hard time? Like, because the guy in the movie didn't do that. He, you know, so I, I think there's an element to that. So I just wanted to bring it up and see if there was 
you know, maybe specific instances that you've experienced with it. Um, but maybe let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the work because you have remained committed to the service in, in many different capacities, being through mentorship and your work. Um, but maybe what, tell us what led you to your current role and why do you feel like you um, still have a calling maybe for your, your brothers in arms that maybe have come back now in uh, um, awarding the, you know, the Medal of Honor or whatnot, but maybe talk about, I guess, your commitment to, to keeping those stories alive and working with people and uh, hearing their version of their experiences. Yeah. So I, you know, I ended up spending 26 and a half years in, in the army and let's say probably 20 of those years were in special forces. Um, and then, you know, at some point it's, you know, everybody has to to say goodbye and um, it was time for me to move on um, to something else. I'd done all my service and uh, interestingly enough, my first post-military job was at the museum of the Bible in Washington, DC. And, uh, which, which was very like, you would have, I would have never believed you if you would have said, Hey man, uh, when you retire, your first job is going to be as like a director of security, director of operations at the museum of the Bible in Washington, DC, I would have probably laughed, but, uh, that's just the way it worked out, man. That's the way it, it all played out. And I had, uh, I had someone that, that knew me and brought me into that position. So I did that for a couple of years. And so I had that experience under my belt. And then I was a consultant for a couple of years, a security and operations consultant. And in that capacity is what led me to meeting uh, the president and CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation, a guy named uh, Chris Cassidy. And Chris okay. has a very unique background. Um, you guys will get a kick out of this. He is a former Navy SEAL. He's an Annapolis uh, grad, you know, Navy, the MIT grad, and he's a former chief NASA astronaut that spent like a ton of time in space. So he's he's a unique character, man. He's got a unique background. But um, when I was a consultant, I met Chris I met him in his office and uh, we talked for a little bit and we kind of had that bond right from the start because he is a former you know, Navy SEAL. I was a U.S. Army Special Forces Green Beret. So we had that bond like instantly. And then I just started telling him like, Hey, I just want to share some experience and lessons learned that I learned at the museum of the Bible. Uh, Cause I was there during construction phase and grand opening and all of that. And I just started kind of like naming off things like, Hey, might want to consider this, consider that, consider this, consider that. One thing led to another and, uh, he walked me outside and was like, hey, would you, uh, if an opportunity presented itself, would you consider working here? And I was like, man, absolutely. And to go back to your question there, like, there's really something for me, like, to be able to give back and to continue serving. Like, once I retired, I, I kind of missed that, you know. Right. And when I was a consultant, it's heavy, it's heavy revenue or, hey, what can you bring in, you know. Um, so, and that's fine. I'm not say anything negative about that that's just you know if you're doing like business development or if you're in that market that's what it's all about but for me just the the opportunity to continue serving and to be around veterans and all of that that was that was very important so that definitely factored into to my decision and that's how chris was uh chris told me that he was up in space his last time and he was just thinking like man what am i going to do this is my last time in space 
you know, and, and he was very attracted to, to being able to do something that he could still like, I'm giving back, I'm still serving, I'm still involved in the community. So, so yeah, that was very important. And that's, that's how I, I got the position, uh, chief of operations at the national medal of honor museum foundation. And, uh, been there for a year and a half now. It's, um, what it, what it basically is, it's a, it's a three pronged project. So we're building the museum in Arlington, Texas, uh, right now. Uh, we broke ground March of 2022 and we're scheduled to, uh, to open March, 2025. Okay. So we're going to have the museum and the wow. leadership Institute that will be in Arlington, Texas. And we have a great location too, man. Uh, we are adjacent to AT&T Stadium where the Dallas Cowboys play. Uh, we're adjacent to Globe Life Field where the Texas Rangers play. Uh, Six Flags. I mean, th that area is just like it's a it's a gorgeous area. Uh, so we have the Leadership Institute. We have the museum that will be opening March 2025. And then the third part of the project is um, we have a monument that we'll be building in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, so hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to do that over by the Lincoln Memorial because there's a tie between the Medal of Honor uh, and President Lincoln because he's the one at first, you know, he was the president when the Medal of Honor was established. So there's definitely a tie between between the Medal of Honor and, and President Lincoln. So, but yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's that's kind of where we're at on the project and what we're trying to do. Um, a lot of the things that I do is is the day-to-day -day ops uh, heavily involved in the construction site uh, especially since the museum is not open yet uh, so i spend a lot of time at the construction site and uh, we have a great team uh, that are doing a lot of hard work a lot of dedicated people and and even our staff man a lot of hard workers a lot of dedication and some people might not realize this i think it's kind of this is interesting but I spent 26 and a half years in the military. I was only ever around one Medal of Honor recipient. Um, and that was uh, Bob Howard. Uh, he was a Vietnam MACV saw guy. Um, allegedly, they said he could probably have been awarded two or three Medals of Honor, but uh, he was a Medal of Honor recipient and he was at one of our functions when I was a younger guy. But um, it's just not very common, man, because you know, there's been 3,500 plus uh, Medal of Honor recipients uh, since the Civil War, uh, since 1863. And uh, there's only 66 that are alive today. Oh, so, wow, to, yeah. yeah, to see a Medal of Honor recipient, I mean, that's uh, that's a really exclusive uh, group of individuals. And uh, out of the 66 that are alive, uh, the majority of those 66 are Vietnam era. I'd say probably maybe 48 to 50. So they're, you know, they're getting up there in age. Um, and uh, it's definitely, it's an honor to be able to have the Medal of Honor recipients on the construction site. And uh, it will punch you in the heart when you, when you hear one of them say like, man, I just want to be alive when this place opens. I just want to be alive when this place opens. So that's definitely a, uh, a punch in the heart. And since we're talking about Medal of Honor recipients and we're talking about the great state of West Virginia, um, West Virginia just lost uh, uh, last year, like one of the, probably the most uh, 
one of the recipients, and that was Woody Williams, uh, who was a Marine Corps. Uh, he was a flamethrower on uh, Iwo Jima and was awarded the Medal of Honor uh, back in World War II. And we lost Woody last year, but Woody was well known uh, throughout the country. Um, everybody knew Woody, and it made me so proud. I, I had a chance to meet Woody uh, back in March of 2022, when we did our groundbreaking, and it was just such an honor for me to, you know, to meet him, and and I was able to tell him um, that I was from West Virginia and I was from Huntington, and I'm pretty sure um, I'm pretty sure that they they named uh, the Veterans uh, Administration building or hospital after Woody yeah, uh, in Huntington. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's that's what a what a treat, man. That's such an honor for me to be able to talk to him for a little bit, tell him I was from Huntington and tell him that that, you know, he was a legend. And uh, the whole time that I served, I just wanted to try to make guys like him proud uh, and the people from my home state. I wanted to make them proud the whole time I was serving. So, um, yeah, Woody was definitely a, a legend and we still we're still in contact with his family and we still see them from time to time. But but yeah, that was just a really, um, and there are a lot of recipients, Medal of Honor recipients from West Virginia. I don't have the exact count, but I believe it's well over 50 or 60. So uh, West Virginia is very well represented in the, the Medal of Honor community. And it's such an honor for me to to be able to have this position, to be able to talk about guys like Woody. You know, it's just, it's a privilege. Yeah. And sticking with Woody here too, like, what was it about Woody that almost resonated with people? Was it just likability? Was it just, he was a guy that anybody could talk to? Obviously his story's well known at a very critical moment in our country's history. Like what about Woody and his story is just so like, ah, you love that guy, you know, wh I, why? I, I'm so glad you asked that question. Cause I, I should have covered this before, but I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question because it's a great question. So Woody's action, if you just if you just read about Woody's action on Iwo Jima, it's like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, it's it's amazing just to read about his action. Like you would just be like, wow, mad props. Like, that's amazing that you were able to do that uh, and still be alive. Like, just amazing. But here's the thing about Woody that I think separated him from the rest. All the work that he did, I think he worked 40 or 50 years. He came back, he worked at the VA, and then he did a lot of uh, fundraising and events for Gold Star families who yep. lost you know, their son or daughter uh, in war. So for decades, I think like 40 years, 50 years, he continued like that. His action on Iwo Jima, amazing, like heroic, like gosh, can't even put it into words. But then all those decades after what he was able to do for the country and the state of West Virginia and Gold Star families from across the country, uh, he just kept working. He kept serving. He kept contributing. And I think that's what separated Woody from a lot of the other uh, folks is just his service uh, and and the great things that he was able to do. He was just such an inspiration. And uh you know, the latter part of his years, you know, he was he was in a wheelchair and things like that. But um, on groundbreaking, we did a ceremony um, 
they did de- American Airlines dedicated a, a an airplane flagship Valor. You might see it flying around the country, different parts. But uh, American Airlines dedicated flagship Valor, which is one of their Medal of Honor uh, branded uh, airplanes. And uh, for that ceremony, we were in a hangar and they dedicated it. But uh, Woody walked out. He had two Marines. He had a Marine on each side, you know, kind of helping him. But he was able to walk out on stage and say a few words to everybody. And man, it was just it was very inspirational. And it just makes me proud thinking about you know, that we have people like that in our country that are willing to sacrifice and do all those different types of things. And uh, what a great ambassador and representative, you know, what he was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and there is a this deep history of the military in West Virginia. I know that you had mentioned like several dozens of West Virginians have been awarded the Medal of Valor or the Medal of Honor, excuse me. And so, yeah. you know, what is it that this connection that West Virginia has to the military? I know that we've touched on maybe aspects of this, but I think the state still has like the highest um, percentage of veterans per capita, or at least up there towards the, the top. And you might even know that way better than I do just uh, statistically, but what is it about West Virginia and a connection to the military that for since the beginning of time, West Virginia has been uniquely tied to um, war and, you know, battles that our country's been in. What about that? Do you have that connection? Do you have that discussion? You know, do you think about that very often? Yeah, I do think about it. I mean, I don't know if I know the exact answers to that. Uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, But I do think that there is a sense of service from, from folks from West Virginia there's a sense of service and and there's a skill set that I think people from West Virginia um, that they have that I think translates very well into the military. And we talked about it, touched yeah. upon it earlier with the, the hunting and trapping and fishing and things like that. I mean, I just think that there's and I think there's some really good, solid people from West Virginia. Um, and, and I think you just combine all of these things. I don't think it's just like one or two things. I think it's like a combination of the resilience, uh, the skills, the sense of service. And, and there's probably, um, if you look into some of these folks and you really dig into their background and their history, there's probably, you know, their father served, their grandfather served. Like there's just this, this sense of service, um, that I think just kind of carries over. And, um, it really makes me proud, man, to be from to be from West Virginia. And yes, I live in Texas now, and I feel like I've assimilated to Texas. But um, I'll always be a West Virginia guy, you know, always, because uh, that's where I was born and raised. And just always try to make West Virginia, you know, proud. Uh, still feel like I'm an ambassador uh, for the great state of of West Virginia. But I just think there's a lot. There's a combination of things that make people. Um, sets people apart you know yeah. absolutely yeah, absolutely and and we're super uh appreciative and uh honored to, to have you on because you're keeping those stories alive you're contextualizing it you're providing the support um and looking forward to, to seeing the grand opening hopefully we'll stay connected with you and you can send us some pictures um because that's 2025 you said you hope to to actually officially open yeah, March 2025. It'll actually it'll actually be on Medal of Honor Day, which is March 25th, 2025. And if awesome. I could if I could just give a really quick uh, call to action here, I'd really appreciate it. Do we have enough time for that? Oh, for sure. Please, yeah. 
Yeah, so we're talking about the National Medal of Honor Museum and and what we're trying to do, and it's a three-pronged project. But if if there's anyone out there that's like, man, that sounds like a great project, and uh, that's going to be great for our country to have a, a museum like this that tells these stories and talks about the values, courage, sacrifice, commitment, integrity, citizenship, patriotism, things that our country is probably lacking on right now, I think most would agree. But if, if there's someone out there that's a little bit like excited or like, man, what could I do to help? You could visit our website. It's mohmuseum.org. Um, always taking donations. We're still trying to raise about $40 million. Um, you can look over my shoulder over here. Yeah. I got some black rifle coffee behind me. Uh, it's about, <laughs> it's the, it's the medal of honor blend from black rifle coffee. They actually have the K cups too. So that's a great way to support us because Black Rifle Coffee, uh, so awesome. But Black Rifle Coffee gives us 100% of the proceeds from the Medal of Honor blend. That's awesome. Uh, the bags or the K-Cups. Uh, you can follow us on social media uh, to keep up with all of our updates. You can follow me on social media. I'm not really a hard guy to find. I'm on LinkedIn and there's not a lot of Daryl Utz. Last name is UTT. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty... Uh, I'm pretty, you know, it's uncommon to find a, a bunch of other people with that same last name. So follow us on social media, uh, go to our website, you can donate. Um, and if you're ever in this area of North Texas, which is where I'm at, um, maybe you're going to come to see a Cowboys game or see the Rangers hopefully play in the playoffs. But um, you always got a, a place uh, you can reach out to me here. Love to give you a tour of the construction site. Um we're just looking for supporters. You can tell your friends and family about us, but we're just trying to get some awareness out there. And uh, but yeah, it's man, it's been a it's been an honor for me to be be on the podcast with you guys. I, I'm a I'm a fan and have a lot of respect for what you guys are doing. So uh, I really appreciate the time today. Thank you, thank you, Daryl. I bet with the last name like that, uh, you have a, you had a good military nickname. Did you just go by? Uh, did they just... <laughs> Man, I've been calling it a little bit of everything. Uh, <laughs> probably some things that probably are not so decent for this show, but yeah, I've been called a little bit of everything, man. Great name. And I, you know, look, I know, I know we'd have a um, give us West Virginia hospitality in Texas. So mohmuseum.org. Um, go to it, guys. Support this. We're certainly going to, uh, we'll share all the links. We'll put them in the description. We'll put all the links to everything. So, yeah, Daryl, once again, thank you for serving your country. Thank you for serving and being a tremendous ambassador for West Virginia. Uh, it means a lot to the people in the Mountain State. So, we appreciate you. Thank you, man. Thank you.